I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, here we are again, as promised. Winston, how are you no. doing? We are, we are here to talk about one of the coolest movies ever. Mm, for the, sure. The Thing. Yeah. This is really exciting because we're not going to just talk about The Thing, John Carpenter's 1982 classic, but we're also going to talk about the uh, novella that spawned it and briefly get into like the 1951 version of the movie and its sequel. But largely, we're going to talk about the badassness of John Carpenter's movie. But before we get into that, man, let's catch up a little bit. It's been two weeks now since we last recorded. So what's been going on with you? You know what, dude? Honestly, I feel like the last, like, couple times that we've talked we've talked about me and because obviously you know i'm resettled in europe and i'm in sicily now but my questions all revolve around you but before that okay i do have a little bit of something that i want to drop one of my neighbors here in sicily um really cool guy giuseppe I, I was aware of this in Sicily, but I didn't really know the full extent of it. And I was thinking about infinite horrors and right. just the new magazine and everything that's going on with that. And I'm so like intrigued by cults and oh, yeah. Aleister Crowley. Cults as a like a phenomenon is a cool thing to do. It's not exactly sci-fi, but like kind of oh no i'm talking about horror i'm talking about infinite horror so giuseppe lives they have like a little print shop that's on this i live in the coolest i'm going to do a video that just gives you a tour of my neighborhood but i basically like i explained earlier i live in the chambers of a palace that was built in like 1100 wow and so i'm in a medieval like castle fucking palace it's amazing under the shadow of this massive cathedral and that's what i wanted when i came to europe i was like i want the weirdest craziest thing but it turns out that in a neighboring city called chefalu which is like i've been there it's like an hour or two away and i'm gonna go back because i didn't get to do what i really wanted to do chefalu is amazing there are everywhere you go dude in in every one of these little cities on this island there's a castle and there's a massive castle in Chefalu on the sea. But in Chefalu, that is where Aleister Crowley, he had his cult there. Right. And well, so there in is Italy? actually, yes, in Sicily. So, so he kind of got like, this is all off the top of my head. I haven't looked any of this up, but I've read about him in the past, but he kind of got chased out of England sort of, right? Or like not mm-hmm. chased, not quite like by the police or anything like that, but like society sort of chased him, like high society. That's right. Sort of. And they wanted like a place where they could do whatever they wanted, right? And so he came to Sicily and the house 
where they lived is still there. So my neighbor, Giuseppe, he goes by Pepe. And so he was in like this death metal fucking band, right? Awesome. <laughs> played drums. That's awesome. <laughs> and so he was really into it. And he and his, he and his uh, wife, they went there and she was telling me, she was like, we went into the house. We crawled in through a window and she said it was so oppressing. It was hard to breathe. It was like felt so evil. And I was thinking about infinite horror. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get some video of Aleister Crowley's house. And we got to do an episode on cults. Got to send the crew there. Bring the whole Infinite Worlds, Infinite Horrors family to <laughs> Italy. To Can you imagine? Do like a reality yeah, and show. So, and so what's crazy, dude, is that Aleister Crowley came here. He had his cult here. You can look it up on Wikipedia on Sicily. Okay. On Aleister Crowley in Sicily. Okay. And so what's wild is that um, then Jimmy Page came and wanted – he was – Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin was so obsessed with Aleister Crowley that I think he bought his mansion, Aleister Crowley's mansion, on the Loch Ness, on the lake. Yeah. And, right? And also came here and wanted to buy and restore the house in, in Cefalu, in Sicily, but the, the authorities would not let him do it. So he took a window, like, out of the place and brought it back <laughs> to England. That's some, but that's some Jimmy wild, Page shit to do, for sure. Right? Yeah, but what's wild, dude, is that I'm I'm starting to realize like the family that owned like this palace, they were involved in witchcraft also. And so I'm starting to see that there's this like real connection between like I don't know, maybe oppressive uh, almost autocratic religious institutions like the Catholic Church. Yeah. And then it like nourishing this like subculture of like witchcraft and like black magic. Sicily has a cathedral on every corner, right? On every right. single corner. And yet there's this history of, of like black magic and witchcraft here also, which I'm just learning about. I've always thought about, I mean, I've known about this kind of interconnection between not necessarily satanic, but demonic cults or black magic cults and the Catholic Church. Yeah. You know, you see like the exorcist and all those things. But for me, it's yeah, just like, good point. it's just, for me, it's just like the Catholic church is exactly like a cult. You know what I mean? Like totally. as, in, in terms of like, <laughs> in terms of their observances and practices and stuff, and it's all incantations and burning smoke and all that shit. Rituals. Ritual chanting and, and all, all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's. And lit. you're eating the body yeah, of exactly. Christ. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And you're drinking, drinking the blood, blood. you know? And so for me, like the reason it runs hand in hand is because they're the same thing, you know, to me. And one just yeah. like, one just shames the other one. All of that is like based on old Druid and pagan religion. Well, I don't want to even use the word religion, but like observances. Yeah. And, and if you look at the history of like the Catholic Church, and I'm sure all religions, but especially the Catholic Church, it seems to me in Christianity, from what I know, the limited amount I know, is that they co-opted oh, yeah. different things. Oh, of course. Right? Like Easter is Ishtar. Christmas is Yule. These were all pagan observances that the Christians, they tried to convert all the pagans by 
just rebranding the holidays they already observed and then pretending like these were like, you know, original Christian ideas. Which is genius, right? Yeah, yeah, it worked. I mean, it it definitely worked. It's like, we don't want to wipe you out. We want to just come into our fold, right? (laughs) It's so funny because, okay, right now, I'm going to parlay this into something I'm doing right now. Right now, I'm doing the, for Infinite Worlds number 12, I'm doing a top 10 all-time sci-fi novels list. I did, you know, the top 10 and then I did 10 like honorable mentions in no specific order. But I was reviewing Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke, which I mentioned, I think, I think we've talked about that book once or twice on the thing before. But, you know, it's about... Dude, the series was insane. Well, the idea behind the series is that these beings called the Overlord show up and they're so much more technologically advanced. What they do is they basically solve all of humanity's problems in exchange for, you know, humanity just kind of like letting them do it. But then as generations pass, you start to see that human culture itself is sort of evaporating and kind of being directed by these overlord creatures. I've read it and then I was just writing a review of it and it kind of dawned on me that to me, it's sort of an analog for mission work, you know, because that's what missionaries do. You know, they go there and they're like, hey, look, here's food and here's water. All you got to do is just read all about Jesus, you know, and then generations later, you've got these whole Christian countries where all the people who would normally be involved in their own religions or their traditions from back in the day are now big into the Catholic Church or big into, you know, the Baptist Church or the whatever, whatever mission showed up first and co-opted their culture. So uh, it's so funny that we're talking about this because I was writing about this this morning. That is so cool, man. That is so cool. <laughs> so I'm going to get some video. I'm going to go to Alistair Crowley's freaking house. I'm going to get some video and uh and check it out and give you a report and just to let you know i live in a house that was owned by a family that was involved in like the early 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 like i think our late 1800s early 1900s involved in black magic here that's awesome so it's freaking (laughs) wild yeah it's very cool but my question is for you is enough about where i am is that Dude, I'm so like not involved and so disconnected from America right now. Oh. <laughs> My question for you is like, I don't even know how much a gallon of gas is. I don't know what's going I'm on. I'm in Denver and it's like $4.80 a gallon or so right now. Wow. Yeah, it's expensive as wow. shit. I don't drive. See, here's the thing is that my wife and I share a car. I don't drive okay. so that I can afford to make Infinite Worlds magazine. Because it doesn't make me a lot of money, mm-hmm. and it, you know, and I have to make some sacrifices in order to, I dig do, that. to yeah. do it to do it for a living. And I live downtown, so I don't really need to drive anywhere. But I don't drive, so I don't have to fill up the tank all the time. But uh, when we do fill up the tank, we split it anyway, even though I don't really drive. And every single time, I'm like, oh my god. But you know, we're lucky because we're like <laughs> we're like pretty light gasoline users compared to you know the guys that that live around here driving their F three fifty Dooley's Hemi. Oh. <laughs> you know, whatever they can't got. even imagine, they, you know, they're getting like eight miles to the gallon and they commute 40 minutes to work each direction and do like contract stuff and have to drive all over the place. So, you know, a lot of people are feeling it a lot worse than I am, but right now the, the crunches, Ugh. the Dow Jones drop below. I mean, for, let me just stop and say that I don't look at the stock market as a viable measure of how the economy is doing. That's just how corporations are doing. You know what I mean? And That's not, that's not reality. In many ways, I am a kitchen table issue when it comes to 
that kind of thing. I'm a kitchen table guy and I don't give a fuck about the stock market or your cryptocurrency prices or anything like that. I don't get, that's all ephemeral imaginary stuff to me. What I care about is how how much the groceries cost, how much does gas cost, how much is rent. And all those things are ridiculous right now. They're absurd. Really? I know that the corporations are making record profits or not all of them, but the oil companies are all making record profits right now. Drug industries are making record profits right now. Wall Street was making record numbers until like just a couple of days ago. I mean, it looks like we're heading into at least another recession, possibly an actual full-blown depression. It's hard to say, but I've already lived through two recessions in my life and I'm not even 40 yet. So I'm, I'm getting a third now. You've lived through three already, but you don't live in America anymore, so you don't have to. (laughs) You're not going to have to go through another one. No, here it's very different, you know, because I'm driving a motorcycle. I fill up my motorcycle. It's 10 bucks. You know, I fill it up once a week. Here, everything, my my cell phone here is is six bucks a a month. (laughs) I buy a bottle of wine here. Honestly, it's two bucks. For a bottle, actually a dollar forty nine. You know, for you, even if the economy there did become inflated, it would still be way cheaper than it was living here before inflation. <laughs> it's like monopoly money for me. I'm being serious. It's like coming from America. Like it's funny because here in Sicily, like I think I might have said this, is like everyone's like, "Why are you here? Why are you here? Why would you leave America?" I'm like, you guys have no idea how. Expensive expensive and how difficult it can be living in America, you know, despite all the great things that we love. But I'm here for the adventure. So I'm not, it's not like my goal is to escape anything. I'm really just here for, you know, just to to enjoy the simulation before it resets. Right. (laughs) But uh, you know what I mean? So, so how about like, like the, uh, the hearings that are happening? Like I've watched last night, I watched like five minutes I've watched pieces here and there, and I always read the recaps every day. It doesn't take much to convince me of what happened. I know what fucking happened. Everybody who's not relying on their biases knows what happened. Like, it's obvious. People are like, there wasn't any violence to that thing. And I was like, okay, because you've watched like a 30-second long, highly edited clip. People died. What do you mean there wasn't any violence? Yeah, people died, dude. Like 140 police officers were hospitalized. 140. You know, and not to say it's the only riot that ever happened or whatever, but it's it was what it was. It was an attack on the Capitol. Dude, it was, a, it was a riot that was in the name of trying to overthrow democracy. It absolutely was. It, yeah, dude. It's like treason is a capital offense in America. At what point are people going to pay the fucking price? Listen, if you go to jail for someone finding a joint in your car for 20 years at some point in our history, then I think if you fucking conspire to stop and overthrow an election... You need to fucking pay the price, you know? I couldn't agree more, you know what I mean? And, I, you know, fingers crossed that somebody will pay the price, but we'll see. It all seems pretty toothless to me. You know, a lot of talk and not a lot of actual me too. shit going down. So we'll see. That's why I'm asking. I'm like, what is going on over there, man? It seems so surreal. It seems so surreal. Well, we'll see. They keep saying there's enough evidence to, you know, to bring charges, but so far... Against who? You know, they're saying Trump. They're saying uh, Giuliani. They're saying... Uh, Everything that I'm hearing, honestly, is that we've never charged a past president for anything, and it's probably not going to... It's not going to happen. I'm not holding my breath. I'll put it that way. But because of that, and the economy being in shambles the way it is, you know, the next election's not looking too fucking favorable either. So I'm trying to get... I saw something... 
Winston, where they were talking about how, you know, in a, in a smaller election already, because of the new people that have been installed, I think maybe in Arizona, someone, there were some commissioners saying, we're not going to certify the election because the votes are not reliable. It's like, if that is portending what is going to happen in 2024, our yeah. democracy, right. American democracy is fucked. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. What I'm trying to do right now is a really slow burn process, and I've been trying to do it, and, and that's get out to the mountains. My wife and I have talked about it. We talk about it all the time. We watch tons of videos. I'm working with my dad on it, and we're, I'm trying to get to the point where in like a year from now, I can go live out in like a camper trailer while I build out a small house. Like I build a small house like from a plan. I have building experience. My dad has building experience. We found affordable tracts of land. And I work from my computer. So as long as I have the internet, my income shouldn't you know, be cut off. <sighs> I just want to get away from like the potential upheaval you know, that we oh, might experience. Shit. Maybe I'm a fucking coward, but I, I'm not going to go out there in the streets and riot or anything. That's I just, crazy. you know. I think that's my, was my question is like, what's going on? And I'm like, wow, that is, it just sounds mad. So far, and I live downtown, so, you know what I mean? So on the streets, you're not noticing anything, but that's, there's only a matter of time. If it keeps going like this, it's only a matter of time Holy before it boils shit. over. Simulation, man. <laughs> All right. So let's jump in to the thing. We've got the 1982 film. We've got a prequel that was released just a few years ago. And we've got a novella that it was all based on. Yeah, the 50s black and white movie. Okay, so if we're going to talk about the thing, you got to start with John W. Campbell, who wrote the novella, Who Goes There? Which, just going to go ahead and say, great title for this story. Who Goes There? I think is even is a much better title than The Thing. Like, I think that's an awesome name for the story. Really intriguing really scary, especially once you've read the story and you know what goes on in it. So he wrote the novella in 1938. That's so long ago. I mean, that is really before the golden age of science fiction. There were science fiction authors before that, of course, definitely a a number of them, but it's like proto-science fiction until like the grand masters of science fiction came along. And he kind of is in the middle. And he wrote this story, got it published in Astounding Science Fiction, And then John W. Campbell himself went on to be one of the most influential people in science fiction ever. Because after all of this, he became the editor of a number of different science fiction magazines. He became the editor of Astounding. He was also editor at Galaxy as well. So my question for you, because I read Who Goes There, and I I, I thought it was amazing, especially for back then. My question is, why did he write that under a pseudonym? Why did he write it under the pseudonym Don Stewart? It was really normal back in the day for science fiction authors to use pseudonyms. And not just one, often they'd use several pseudonyms. And everybody had their own reasons for doing it. But one of the big reasons back in the day was to write different styles of stories under different names. Okay. So that that author could be recognized as writing a certain style of story. Ah. And it wouldn't pigeonhole the author themselves into writing that kind of story. Or they wouldn't be known for that kind of story. This fictional author yeah. would be known for that kind of story. Don A. Like Stewart. a brand. It was like a brand. It's like a brand underneath the umbrella. Basically is how it worked for a lot of these writers. Yeah. That's not the only reason. And everybody had their own particular reasons for doing that. But I understand that this was John W. Campbell's reason for doing this. In fact, Don A. Stewart, which was the pen name that he used to publish Who Goes There, 
is actually named after his one of his early, I think it's his first wife. It might be his second wife, whose name was Donna Stewart. Wow. That's so cool. She would like, you know, read over his stories and that kind of thing. Yeah. So it might have something to do with like stories that she kind of helped with a little bit. Okay. So The Thing from Another World gets published. John W. Campbell, in the wake of that, becomes a hugely influential guy. Here's how influential he was. He was integral in beginning the careers of a few names you might know, like Robert Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke, Theodore Sturgeon. Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the thing that propelled him into superstardom in science fiction. At 21 years old, he walked into John W. Campbell's office with the idea, and the two of them workshopped it for like two hours before he said, okay, yeah, go write that. And then he brought it back and Campbell published it. He basically brought up all of the biggest names in science fiction in the middle of the 20th century. And he's known for being a really, really tough editor. He would never read something and be like, this is good. He'd read something and be like, here are all the things you need to change. Now go change them. He was very particular as an editor. Astounding, while he was the uh, editor, won Best Professional Magazine seven times. Damn. The Hugo Award. He was a big wig in the business. But to this day, the thing people most know him for is who goes there, the thing. Not that Who Goes There is a particularly popular story, but you know, for those of us who are interested in science fiction, you want to know the origins of the story. Okay, so let's talk about the story. Um, you said you've read it recently? Yeah. And, and what I was amazed by, dude, I'm such a fanatic. Like We all have our like fetishes and things we love. I'm such a fanatic mm-hmm. for like how things start. And when I read like the opening paragraph of that, I was like, oh, oh my God. This is the 1982 movie. This is it right here. It is. Dude, the story is so similar to the 1982 film. The 1982 film, script-wise, other than like the era in which it takes place, they're very nearly identical. Dude, and it starts with the run, the dog. Remember the dog running? And, and the movie starts with the dog running. The short story, if I'm recalling correctly, starts very first with the them gathered around the dripping body. So listen, I'm gonna read the I'm gonna read the first paragraph. Okay. Okay, yeah, read the first paragraph. Great. The thing for me was I was like, all the elements, although they're different, are all here. And so he said the first sentence, and I love the first sentence, the place stank. Yeah. A queer mingled stench that only the ice buried cabins of an Antarctic camp know, compounded of reeking human sweat and the heavy fish oil stench of melted seal blubber. An overtone of liniment combated the musty smell of sweat and snow of snow-drenched furs, the acrid odor of burnt cooking fat, and the animal, not unpleasant smell of dogs, diluted by time, hung in the air. And for me, I was like, the dogs, and you're inside of this camp. It's almost like they read that, and they're like, the right, the screenwriters are like, we're going to make this shit all about. Yeah, we got the, we, he just set the entire the dogs, environment though. up for yeah, you right. with the dogs. In the story, it's basically, uh, they're all gathered around, and then um, they have McCrady's character, who's, he's not the commander, he's the second in command, but he's in the story, the most steadfast and capable person in the crew. Everybody in this crew is a scientist of some kind. McCrady is a meteorologist. And everybody has like a scientific discipline because they're at a research station in, okay, here's another great thing about this story, which uh, again, it's a fantastic story. They have really great names for all of the camps. In the movie, the camp is called McMurdo. 
which uh, is an area in Antarctica. And that's why oh, it's named that. Okay. Okay. But in the story, the camp is called Big Magnet, which is such a cool, like just, just the name Big Magnet just makes you think, what are they studying there? And then <laughs> right. the way they're, and the way they actually find the buried ship in this story is because they read a magnetic force separate from the South Pole. And are like, okay, there's something out there creating some sort of magnetic pool. And they think it's like a giant iron deposit. And they go out and they find the spaceship. And just like in the book, the, the spaceship's buried under ice. And they find the thing also frozen in the ice. They cut it out of the ice and bring it back to their base camp. And the story pretty much proceeds how the movie proceeds. They try a different technique for testing the blood before they get to the test that they use in the movie and that makes there's a little bit extended makes it makes sense why they cut it the real difference to me is that the intelligence of the thing in the, the novella in who goes there is better explained i think you know there's a lot more talking about how intelligent it is and at the very end just like in the story they've got the doctor isolated out in a cabin outside of the base and just like in the story, they go out to find out where he is. In the movie, he's escaped by digging a tunnel, and they track him down. In this one, he's still in there. The thing is, he's a, he, you know he is a thing, and he has constructed or it has constructed a nuclear powered anti gravity device that would help it escape Antarctica just by using anti gravity, and they are able to kill it just in time, right before it's able to use this and escape. You know, not to spoil the end of the story for you, but. I just did. <laughs> if you've ever listened to one of our podcasts and like went in being like, oh, dude, spoiler alert. Come on, man. What do you, what do you, what do you... <laughs> it's all I mean, spoilers. <laughs> it's all spoilers over here, okay? Okay, so listen. I read this story once a long time ago, and then I read it again recently for this, and it was so awesome. It is such an awesome story. It reads wonderfully i know it's really exciting it's it's really tense it's so much like the 1982 story you know it's only like fifteen thousand words or something like that or twenty thousand words so if you guys have you know a couple of hours to kill definitely give it a read it's awesome and you'll like really appreciate the film better after reading yeah and especially for you know it's written so well considering you know writing evolves and communication evolves and language evolves. And to me, it's such a tight, minimalist, cool story. And it's written, you know, I, I, that's what kind of blew me away. I was like, holy shit, man, this guy was so cutting edge to write like this so early. It is a very cutting edge story. It's extremely yeah, it's cutting edge because it still feels... pull this off. Yeah. 1938, 1938. The 1982 version feels only barely updated. Yeah. And it was like 45 years later. You know, bravo to John W. Campbell for the story. And, you know, for being a great editor, I think he was kind of a dickhead in a lot of other ways. <laughs> Tr truthfully, I think he was like a, into pseudoscience and like segregation apologists and all this kind of oh, stuff. Wow. There's no secret that a lot of these, okay, yeah. this story is also strongly Lovecraftian. There kind of was this school of really, really shitty dudes that were really good at writing science fiction at this time in history. I'm going to circle back to, you know, we have to put ourselves into what life was really like in the early 20th century, late eight, you know, 19th century, 
to where there was no internet, but yet right. these there was this school right of of intellectuals who right. somehow found each other, and that's what I was kind of saying about Sicily is that people from Europe who were into cult things kind of gravitated towards Sicily. And there was also this school of like people like William Burroughs and these other artists who were really, really outside of the norm, who ended up like in Tunisia and Africa, and they kind of found each other. Right. Or Hemingway, the movie Midnight in Paris talks about how after, mm -hmm. you know, in like 1920s and 30s, a lot of artists from around the world ended up in Paris, right? right. And so I, there's, I think like you're hitting on that. Like there was this school, right, of sci-fi writers who kind of gravitated towards these things and they found each other somehow. I would love to understand that more of how they did that. It's a birds of a feather flock together kind of a thing mm -hmm. at the time. Back in the day, when magazines were published in this way, not like how Infinite Worlds is published, but back in this, they had like offices, you know, yeah. with, you know, secretaries who could answer mail and that kind of thing. So and they you could wrote just each write. other, right? They wrote mail. Yeah, they just wrote each other. They just yes. wrote each other letters. And you know, I get emails from people all day, but I can't afford a staff. It doesn't work that way anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, all of my work is done sitting in front of a laptop or with my phone in my hand. And it kind of makes me sad because that really was the golden age. But I'm really also glad that guys like W. Campbell and Lovecraft weren't like the, the heavy hitters anymore because they really were like interested in making it like a white boys club. Like yeah. you notice the names of the people that John W. Campbell like made their careers. It was for white guys. You notice I didn't name any Hispanic guys or Asian guys or women or God forbid a black person. You know what I mean? So in a way that really he found the best that white males had to offer dude i just read something that like one of the greatest not greatest one of the best selling white artists or writers alive today was just having to apologize because he was crying about uh white males can't oh make james patterson yeah you saw that huh i was like oh what yeah I read all about wrong this. with you the dude's the he is he's the wealthiest writer in the world in the world you know what don't quote me on that but i have read that he's the wealthiest writer in the world and he's gonna bitch about you know not getting opportunities get the fuck out of here buddy i couldn't believe that the playing field is being leveled i mean that's yeah. all it is you're not gonna get picked over somebody who's black or a woman or whatever just because you feel like you deserve it you know what i mean it's not yeah. that's not how it works anymore and thank goodness you know i'm happy about that so anyway john w campbell's life kind of ended up getting kind of fucked up because he was such a douchebag and you know he got his back turned on him by a lot of the sci-fi community because he acted this way like isaac asimov disavowed him and a lot of the other these other guys because like, disavowed of his, him. So his racism up, or because of what yeah because he was a racist ah. you know but a sexist too he wasn't publishing women you know or at least very few so yeah. he, he was just that kind of like early 20th century conservative minded person at least in those ways mm -hmm. so you know a lot of these scary stories come from shitty people some of them come from really good people don't get me wrong like not all yeah. horror and early science fiction writers were shitty but you know there is that that vein running through it and we've addressed that lots of times on this show yeah okay so let's move on so the story gets adapted 
1951, about 12 years after it's written, into a movie called The Thing from Another World. Often it's just called The Thing. And I have seen it, and it's all right. It was produced by Howard Hawks, who was a really big producer at the time. And, you know, John W. Campbell got the help on the screenplay. Yeah, I think Howard Hawks helped write the screenplay, too. He was huge at this time. He was a big deal at this time. So it got produced by, like, a really big producer or whatever. But truthfully... It's not that great of a movie. I've watched it. It's okay. It sticks to the story in some ways, mm-hmm. but not in the, the important ways, in my opinion. Funny enough, it's got a 7.1 on IMDb. So it's like considered to be a pretty good 50s B sci-fi movie. I personally, having read the story and seen the 1982 thing, I was not that blown away. It's got really bad sound mixing, which really messes me up. Like I can hardly understand anything anyone's saying while I'm watching it, but it's not bad. It's just, if you watch a lot of early fifties sci-fi movies, you might know what to expect in terms of quality. Mm -hmm. And it definitely falls into that. You could tell they didn't spend as much money as they should have to make this movie kind of thing, even though it had a huge producer behind it. So, you know, it's worth your time to watch this movie, I would say, mm-hmm. but don't get your uh, expectations too high. I haven't seen it, so, and I'm probably not going to. <laughs> it's not even an hour and a half long. So, you know, if you ever see it available on like Netflix or wherever, you know, and you don't have anything else to watch, give it a go. Okay. Okay. So then years pass. And then in the seventies, there's talk of doing another remake. And there were a lot of people involved in potentially doing another remake. William F. Nolan who directed Logan's Run in the late 60s, had put together a treatment for it. And there were a few others, but at the end, ended up going to John Carpenter, who put together his version of the movie, the one that if you've seen it, you know. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, before we talk about like the movie itself, I just want to say that it was a disaster for John Carpenter. Really? Oh man, it was one of the biggest disasters of his career. Because, you know, there was a lot of expectation on it. He was coming off some very popular movies. He had made Halloween. He was thought of as being like the next big director. I think I I heard that they were having problems even getting it financed, but because of Alien. Yeah, that did happen. The studio was like, oh, this is the next Alien. That is kind of what happened is that the studio kind of like fell off making it. You know, they had had that treatment from uh, Stewart and a few others. That was getting passed around a little bit, sort of died off. And then Alien sort of revolutionized. That's how Hollywood was. That's how Hollywood, you know, it came out and was a big success and was, did not have a gigantic budget. So they're like, okay, you know what? We could do this too. They spent 15 million making it and it made 19.6 million. So it made 4 million, almost 5 million bucks, which it's not a bomb. You know, it made money, but it did not make anywhere near as much money as they wanted it to make. And it got horrible reviews. This movie got some of the worst reviews ever. Let me read some of Instant Junk, A Wretched Excess. It was voted the most hated film of all time by Cinefantastique. Wow. Besides getting bad reviews, it also did poorly in the box office because it was in theaters at the same time as E.T., which, okay, you're going to take your your family to see an alien movie. Which one are you going to take them to? Even now, that's tough competition. That's crazy. And, you know, E.T. is like happy. You know, it makes you feel good. The thing, it doesn't do that. No. Yeah, it's a horror movie. And and it's a fucking depressing horror movie, too. Yeah. Uh, there had also been a number of other pretty popular sci- sci-fi and fantasy movies happening around that time. And also, it was during a recession. So people were less likely to go see two movies. In good times, people go see E.T. and then get a babysitter and go see The Thing. During a recession, you don't want to pay for two movies or pay for a babysitter. So it ended up not doing very well. And what makes that really funny to me is that 
that happened. It sort of bombed out. Carpenter rebounded and made a number of popular movies after that. But the thing was sort of like a black eye on his record for a long time. But there's this like historically revised reviews of this movie. Right now, sitting on IMDb, The Thing has an 8.2 out of 10. Wow. I just looked at the IMDb's top 100 greatest movies of all time. And the number 100 movie on the list has an 8.3, meaning that this movie is just barely outside of the 100 greatest movies of all time, according to IMDb users now. Damn. You know, IMDb has been around for 20 years. So those ratings have been, you know, racking up since IMDb's inception. So something happened between 1982 and about 2002 that during that 20 year period where attitudes towards this movie changed dramatically going from being like a everyone hated it piece of shit to it being one of the seminal science fiction body horror movies of all time it's crazy because it's almost like we should do an episode on movies cult sci-fi movies that people hated at the time and then just became like donnie darko where you know donnie darko is one of my favorite sci-fi movies ever complete bomb and yet it became just this cult movie that people are like, you know, that is it. That's one of the greatest. Isn't that wild? I was born in 83. So this movie came out one year before I was born. So obviously I wasn't like a part of what was going on when it was released. You know, I didn't know anything about that. And I, I probably didn't see the movie until I was like, I don't know, 10 or 12 mm-hmm. or so. And it wasn't like a movie that my folks were like, oh, this is one you got to see. Probably because they remembered it sucking. Yeah. You know, because they're old enough so that when it came out for them, they were like, oh, that movie sucked. But when I finally saw it, I was like, every practical effect in that movie is genius. Yeah. I don't throw that around a lot, but let's, now that we're here, let's talk about the production of this movie. So John Carpenter, he puts together this, you know, the cast that's in this movie, I think is fantastic. You know, uh, Kurt Russell, Keith David, Wolford Brimley. I think the chemistry between all these actors is really good, personally. And I think, generally speaking, it's a well-cast movie with lots of good characters in it. Why people thought the characterization was bad when it came out, I don't get. But I wasn't around in 1982 to be a judge in that period of time. But whatever happened during that time, like by the time I got around to seeing it, I was blown away. And one of the big reasons that I was blown away is by the many, many, many incredible creature effect scenes in this movie. And that's really basically thanks to one person, and that's a guy named Rob Botton. Rob Botton is an American special effects creator. This guy, Rob Botton, did pretty much all of the visual effects. When he made this movie, he was 21 years old. Oh, Jesus. Very interesting character, this Rob Botton guy. He is six foot five, and at 21, he just made puppets and creature effects. He is possibly one of the best ever. He had actually already done creature effects for The Fog, which came out two years before this. So he would have only been like 19. Which was also John Carpenter, right? That's how he got to work with John Carpenter. Ah. Rob Button was so possessive of the creature effects and so possessive of how he wanted everything to look that he basically, when he, he described it as hoarding the jobs, like he wouldn't allow other members of the crew to work on things that he specifically wanted to get a specific way. Ah, he's a micromanager. (laughs) He was an incredible micromanager, and he was such a micromanager that he ended up living on the Universal lot for a whole year 
So he didn't have to leave. He didn't take any days off. He worked seven days a week. Oh my God. He worked so hard that he had to be hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer at 21 (laughs) while he was making this movie. So like in the middle of this movie being made, he had to be hospitalized because he had worked himself nearly to death. Wow. At 21, making all of these crazy creatures. And he just did not allow himself to rest. So he gets hospitalized and they have to replace him for the few visual effects that are left. And guess who they bring in? Stan fucking Winston. Oh my God. They replace this phenom of this industry with the greatest of all time. Holy shit. And he comes back in and he does like the, the dog thing, you know, very iconic. Yeah. The dog thing is super cool and super iconic in that movie, but there are so many Rob Botten creations that are incredible. The spider head, when Norris's stomach opens up, it has teeth in it and bites that dude's hands off. There are about a million other ones in the movie. If you haven't seen this movie recently, go watch it again and just watch how- Or go on YouTube and just look for the effect. There's almost certainly a hypercut of it on YouTube. You know, that might not be a bad idea to do it that way either. Yeah. The movie also has a score by Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone, in case you guys don't know, is an Italian composer. He did, you know, the very famous spaghetti Western, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly- those kinds of things. Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso is one of my favorite movies. Yeah, and he did tons of amazing scores over the years, just over and over and over again. And then he finally won an Oscar when he was like 90 years old for doing... Hatefully. Yeah. So this movie had tons of geniuses attached to it. Here's my thinking, and I can't prove this. I think that mainstream audiences weren't ready for body horror Ah. yet. Before this, there was only a couple of directors who were even trying body horror. There were zombie movies and that kind of thing. And there was definitely some horrifying zombie movies made before this with lots of gruesome stuff going on. But those weren't blockbusters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Those movies weren't dragging people into theaters. They were like cult classics too. And of course, we just did an episode on Cronenberg. And Cronenberg had made several body horror movies before this. But none of those movies were really pitched as a mainstream film. And the thing was... The thing was supposed to be a mainstream success. Universal Pictures, a mainstream director who had just directed a couple of really big hits, had Ennio Morricone who had done all of these hits. So it was expected to be a mainstream success. But my thinking, again, this is just my view of this, is that it was just too gross for people. People saw dogs being torn to pieces and heads growing spider legs and all this different stuff and were just too grossed out by it. When people asked them what it was, they're like, oh, it was, it's like a gross out movie. And then by the time I was old enough to appreciate it, body horror had become like established. You know, after this movie, The Fly came out and, you know, Cronenberg's influence continued to grow in the film industry and kind of like normalized body horror for people. So my thinking is that almost directly because of David Cronenberg, that this movie became a cult hit because he Ah. allowed people to, you know, digest body horror in a way that they weren't ready for in 1982. At least mainstream audiences weren't. I mean, you think about it. I mean, there are tectonic shifts in public taste, you know, for me. Oh, for sure. I mean, mean, any kind of art. Look at Van Gogh, you know, couldn't sell a painting in his lifetime. And now is the greatest artist that ever lived. Exactly. It reminds me of that meme, the uh, Back to the Future meme, where he's on the stage and he's like, oh, uh, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. 
uh, when he's playing <laughs> Chuck Berry. Hey, he's like, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> the Thing is one of those movies. Real quick, we could talk about the prequel that was made in, um, was it 2011 or so? I just saw it. Uh, what'd you think? Very forgettable. <laughs> I thought yeah. the, I thought the effects seemed overdone and playing, yeah. trying to really like take it up a notch. And I, I don't know, man. I thought the characters were just didn't really interest me. Like the way mm. that uh, you just didn't have that charisma that you had. I agree. I, that, that's, that was my main beef with it too, was it's kind of lack of charisma. There are some scenes of visual effects in the movie that I'm like, okay, that's pretty scary. But even those scenes, it's sort of a mix of practical effect and CGI effect. And because of that, it creates sort of an uncanny valley, which kind of takes away from the scariness of it to me. Yeah. There's something that happened with early CGI to where it's just so bad. It pulls you out of a movie Mm. so fast compared to, you know, those early practical. It's just there's that gulf between what they can do now with CGI and what you know, like Phantom Menace and all those pre, all, all right. the prequels for right. Star Wars, where you watch them now and you're like, I know the movie that scripts are bad and all that, but the CGI, just talking about it in that just particular context, mm. it doesn't hold up. And I felt that right. way. I, I, to me, it felt like, okay, look what we can do, look what we can do, look what we can do. Yeah, and it was like, okay, but the story's not there and the characters aren't there. Kurt Russell. In 82. In the the original novella, the team that's at Big Magnet Base discovers a magnetic field and they go out and explore and that's how they find the spaceship. In John Carpenter's remake, the American team is 10 or 20 miles away from a Norwegian team. And the way they discover this is all happening is because the Norwegian team ends up coming to them trying to kill a dog that's escaped that is later revealed to be a thing. And because none of the Americans speak Norwegian, there's a, a, a communication gap. And this movie, the 2011 the Thing, is a prequel that explains what happened at the Norwegian base. That's right. Yeah, before the events of John Carpenter's 82 movie. And, you know, honestly, it seems unnecessary. You get the idea. The Thing came and fucked everybody up. <laughs> yeah, what more yeah. do you need to know, really? Like, you know what happened. Another little thing about John Carpenter's movie is that that writing is really good you don't need to know what happened there because you know what happened there like when you Mm -hmm. when you watch what happens at mcmurdo you know what happened to the norwegians yeah by the time the movie's over you're like oh yeah they got fucked (laughs) yeah they got destroyed by the thing and the thing is a really scary idea because it can take any form and it can understand the uh oh there's another difference too in the story in the who goes there and the the prequel and John Carpenter's movie is that it's explained that the thing is also psychic. It could read your thoughts and transmit thoughts to you. And that explains how it's able to so effortlessly take on the personalities of the beings that it consumes. You bring up a really good point. And I think one of the reasons that the story works so well and that the 1982 movie for me works so well is because in a way it's very Philip K. Dick in the sense that it's the subtext of this is about paranoia. Paranoia. Who the fuck is who? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Even at the end of the 82 version, you're like, is that McCready? Is that not, what is going on here? Right. Yeah. 
it's unanswered paranoia. And paranoia is the central theme. And that's why I think that title, Who Goes There, is such a great goddamn title. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just you can just imagine everyone, you know, side eyeing everyone else. It's not about together the monster. This. It's about the paranoia. It's about the paranoia, and also the monster's also scary. But you know, yeah, yeah you're right. Of course, cre- of course. This, this particular monster creates paranoia. It's such a great idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think uh, we're about hitting the time limit here. Is there anything else you wanted to throw in? No, just that you know, the more I think that if you haven't seen the eighty-two version or if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it because Kurt Russell is fucking at his peak. He is killing yeah, absolute it. Peak. His charisma. Peak Russell. Ugh. And it's fun. It's a fun movie too. At least the first half is fun. For sure. It, it ends on a dark note, but it stays fun the whole way through actually, I think. I like if you a don't dark mind. note. It's a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Michael Myers gets away. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a great one. It definitely belongs in like the pantheon of science fiction films, there's no question. And the story belongs in the pantheon of science fiction writing yeah. too. So it's, it's definitely a reason that it stayed popular and that they decided to make a prequel and everything and that we're making an episode about it because it fucking rules. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. All right, that was a good one, man. I'm stoked we uh, got to delve into that one, especially I love the fact that this was based on uh, like with Infinite Worlds, it's based on, and my love of sci-fi is about short stories. So I love the fact that this is yeah. based on like a, a shorter, you know, sci-fi. That's so rad. What are we going to do next? It's a really good question. One that I've been kind of throwing around in my head a little bit is Watchmen. Mm. Uh, I know that that one has like a pretty big cult following. Let's do it, dude. That's like my favorite graphic novel, man. I love watching. It's not strictly science fiction. There's no science fiction related to most of the characters, but then right smack in the middle of it, you've got Dr. Manhattan, which is like the most sci-fi concept ever. Ever. So, uh, you know, I'll probably spend the whole episode talking about that character. Dude, I watched that movie and I just go from Dr. Manhattan to Dr. Manhattan to Dr. Manhattan scenes. Because I just skip all the other scenes. I do, because it's so sci-fi. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Yeah. Very, very cool. Right. Let's do Watchmen next. We have a few other ideas on the nest, but we kind of like got to get them scheduled. But yeah, let's do, let's do, uh, let's do that next. I'm stoked. That's awesome. All right, brother. Great catching up. I'll talk to you next week. Watchmen. Yes. Like. Peace. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker. And our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 